Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So this is the first episode after the Course Health series, which was a phenomenal experience and I'm delighted that it seems to have landed far and wide across the healthcare landscape. The series was epic and I'm recording this a couple of days after the release of the final episode with Rani, Matt and Christine, so it feels a bit like the morning after the night before. My Course Health experience has had an impact on the focus I want for the podcast and I think the series may have shaped the trajectory and the sorts of conversations I want to have and bring to you. So exploring the underlying assumptions, theory and philosophy of clinical practice and research will now certainly be on the agenda of the show, but also in many ways it's business as usual, and I'll continue to have a focus on the stories, language and relationships which are fundamental to clinical practice and the healthcare of people. So please stay tuned, listen and re-listen to the episodes, and subscribe to the podcast. So on this episode, I'm speaking with Karimi Mascuto. Karimi is a physiotherapist originally from Brazil, and she's currently a final year PhD student at the University of Queensland, where her research is looking critically at the biopsychosocial model in relation to low back pain. And her research is underpinned by critical theory, utilising the qualitative methodologies of Foucauldian discourse analysis, and ethnography to understand how the BPS model is conceptualized, enacted, and embodied, and the power dynamics within it, around it, and underneath it in the management of low back pain. So, in this episode, we talk about Karimi's excellent critical review, recently published in the journal Disability and Rehabilitation. And her review looked at how the BPS model has been conceptualized by researchers and the associated discourses about it. We talk about the fragmentation of the BPS model and how there is often an emphasis, albeit unintended, on the biological aspects. And we discuss how the social aspects are often forgotten, de-emphasised and marginalised and why the social is everywhere and cannot or shouldn't be avoided. Finally, we discuss the underlying and overlying power structures within clinical practice, and Karimi talks about an audio recording that she made with two of her PhD supervisors, Dr. Jenny Setchell and Dr. Rebecca Olson, on this topic. And I've linked this excellent audio discussion, plus Karimi's critical review, in the show notes. So I really enjoyed talking to Karimi. Her fresh outlook on an oldish model using even older theory, gives a new perspective and uncovers the hidden assumptions, meanings and power of the BPS model and how these may play out during research and when clinicians interact with patients. Karimi is a future star and I cannot wait to read her further work in this crucial area of clinical practice. So I bring you Karimi Mascuto. Karimi, welcome to the podcast. 
Uh, thanks for having me here, Oliver. Great being here. I wish I was there. I wish we were actually there. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Australia is doing really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I'm in I'm in London, which is very cold today, and mm. I imagine the weather is the same as it was four months ago in Queensland. It seems to be pretty consistent. Yeah, Queensland has a a great weather. That's why I was actually I'm from Brazil, so I actually came here also because of the weather. So. <laughs> So it's it's so good to talk to you. And I remember when I suppose what prompted me wanting to speak to you was seeing your paper, which is now, it seems like it was ages ago that you tweeted it or someone tweeted it, but your super interesting review, which was a review, which a form of review, which isn't readily published in MSK, you know, Foucauldian DA or discourse analysis. And we'll talk a bit about the methodology that the, it struck me as being methodologically a different type of review that's commonly done in relation to MSK and the BPS model. So I'm really pleased that we can dive into that a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was uh, new for me as well to actually do this kind of uh, review. And I'm yeah really excited to talk a little bit more about how we, how we did it and uh, the process of it. But yeah, it's not usually um, seen like it was a critical review. And we use the type of analysis, a discourse, a Foucauldian discourse analysis, which is also not very used um, in uh, Moscow Skeletal, you know, uh, to actually analyze the biopsychosocial model. So, yeah, every double new. <laughs> so before we get into that, maybe you could just tell us a bit about your academic and clinical background. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a physiotherapist by background. I'm currently doing my PhD here at the University of uh, Queensland uh, in Australia. Uh, I'm originally from Brazil and uh, I have an advisory team. So I'm supervised by um, Dr. Jenny Setchell. She's my main supervisor. She's also a physio. I also have um, uh, Associate Professor Rebecca Olson. So she's a sociologist, actually. Uh, and I also have uh, Professor Paul Hodges, uh, so in my advisory team. So my amazing advisory team. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like the A team. What a brilliant team! Yeah, I know, right? Uh, different expertise, <laughs> different. Um, yeah, they they are absolutely amazing. So which is really different from Brazil. Brazil usually have one supervisor, and over here I have three, and they all complement each other. So it's great. So yeah, I'm doing my PhD here, uh, and. Uh, the topic of my projects, actually, I'm looking critically at the biopsychosocial model um, in low back pain care. And through that, I'm only using qualitative methodologies, qualitative methods, which is also um, something very interesting. It's the first time that I actually had contact with um, qualitative methodologies. And by critically looking at the biopsychosocial model in low back pain, we are actually using ethnographic observations which means that I just sit in consultations uh, with clinicians and patients with low back pain to kind of observe and take notes of what's going on in the interaction. So I'm, I'm actually uh, more interested in the non-physical aspects of low back pain, the non-biological aspects, so psychological, uh, social, yeah, interpersonal, etc., moral, ethical, etc. So this sounds like the PhD I wish I'd done. Uh, it sounds super fascinating. I was really, really, really lucky, definitely, yeah, to be in contact with all these different uh, ways of doing research, right? So now I've got some kind of orientation. So the, the critical review 
that was published in Disability and Rehabilitation last year. That was, I guess, the not preliminary work, but that was the, the first part, I'm imagining, of your PhD. And now you're getting into, the you're probably into now, the, the data collection where you're doing these non-participant observations and I'm assuming some kind of transcription or some interviews. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The critical review was the first paper of my PhD, actually. So, of course, we needed to see, you know, what the literature is talking about, um, how the biopsychosocial model is conceptualized um, in the in the literature to actually uh, set up the ground to actually do the research. But my pro- my PhD sits within a wider project. So this project is massive, is led by Dr. Jenny Satchel, and I'm only taking some part of it. But we use the observations, the ethnographic observations, and also participatory methods. So we engage with clinicians and people with lived experience with low back pain to kind of make sense and understand how we can enhance these non-physical aspects of care in practice. And so... So you you mentioned, and we both mentioned, the critical review, and people listening might think, well, surely all reviews are critical, particularly all reviews of the literature, and the point of being a researcher is to think critically about knowledge and evidence. But when we're using the word critical, we're meaning a particular orientation in terms of theoretical perspective. Yeah, exactly. So a critical, there are a lot of different uh, ways of doing reviews, right? You have narrative reviews, you have uh, scoping reviews, and you have the most well-known, the systematic reviews. And systematic reviews, and especially scoping reviews as well, um, so they have, and they're underlined by uh, positivists, right? Um, so you have this epistemological assumption that there's only one truth, and I want to be as unbiased as possible, so you have the risk of bias, so you have all those checklists to appraise quality, right? And of course, you have some critical understanding of the literature itself, but it's very objective. So it's a, it's a critically objective uh, way of appraising the literature, and the focus is more on quality and actually seeing everything from the literature. A critical review, actually, you don't necessarily have to do a systematic search or appraise everything, right? Um, so you can actually uh, search for, for articles and you're not interested in the quality of the outcomes or the quality, but you're interested in seeing the knowledge that is portrayed in the, in the article. So actually that was really why we decided to do a critical review and not a systematic one, because it actually fits within our, our epistemological assumptions, our, um, the way that we see knowledge and the way that we see how knowledge can be constructed. So maybe say something about that, because even if we go a bit deeper into the sort of review that you did, it was critical, but it had a particular theoretical perspective, Foucauldian discourse analysis or, or, or that, that particular philosophy. So again, that struck me because it's not a, a, an approach which is usually... I mean, when I was doing my PhD, there were physiotherapy students doing using this perspective, but not often published. Actually, that's the the key thing. That they rarely they often do a thesis and it sits. But it was so nice to see mm. this philosophical qualitative work published. And maybe say a bit about, and we could do twenty five hours on Michel Foucault, which we're not <laughs> going to. I've just listened to a series of podcasts on him um, to remind myself. But maybe just f- for the listeners, what does it mean to do a a Foucauldian analysis of the literature? So the critical review is a 
type of review, and we decided to do um, a Foucauldian discourse analysis, which is the type of analysis, which uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be connected with the critical review, right? Critical review, you can do other types of analysis um, through your the, uh, through the literature that you find. And um, the Foucauldian discourse analysis was actually proposed from my supervisors. They are very well known and well versed in the uh, qualitative area. And they, we actually started very inductively. Uh, so this critical review was actually um, an idea of, okay, let's pull out the, the literature and what the literature says about the biopsychosocial model. And we actually started to uh, see some patterns, right? And this course analysis can be, you know, there's not only the Foucauldian discourse analysis, there are all the types of um, discourse analysis, but we actually saw in the data that there were certain patterns and the way that the biopsychosocial model was uh, mentioning physiotherapy, so the critical review was um, how, you know, how the biopsychosocial model is constructed. And there were certain patterns about each of the, the, the elements, right? So the Foucauldian discourse analysis is more about power and how power is constructed and how uh, power interacts. And with the construction of the biopsychosocial model, that's what we wanted to perceive and to go a little bit deeper. Uh, and to understand what's happening, what the literature in physiotherapy says about the biopsychosocial model, what patterns are actually, are we saying that we're doing a biopsychosocial approach? Uh, the literature is saying that we're doing a biopsychosocial approach, but are we really? And how actually these ways that we talk about and the text mention about the biopsychosocial model, how this can actually uh, shape our knowledge our practices. And so this is important. And this is what we really wanted to know is that discourses, they do something, right? They are not only text, they are not only things that are drawn from the data, but they also shape the way that we talk to each other, the way that we, we act and think. So a Foucauldian discourse analysis is actually what are things that are prioritized what are the things that are not prioritized and actually marginalized? So that's why we actually decided to to kind of go a little bit more deeper and have this type of analysis. And I think I think it really it really adds a, a novel perspective. You know, the, you know, the BPS model or framework is reasonably well researched now, right? Then you know, it's thirty plus forty years old. There's lots of trials and systematic reviews and reviews looking at it but i think the way in which you describe the four discourses or these four patterns if you like which describe the different conceptions and the way that these conceptions are communicated in the literature in a way and to show that the variance if you like of how the bps model is described by i mean really they're described by the people that wrote the papers you're not saying that they're described by necessarily by the clinicians that maybe took part i mean it's proxy isn't it that, that the researchers are describing potentially the views of their participants which might be clinicians or patients but largely you're interested in how the the bps model was communicated and conceptualized by these researchers in their in their texts yeah exactly so we can't actually i i mentioned uh clinicians and um but he, the way that we texts are, or even images are portrayed and are uh, disseminated, that also contributes to our practice, isn't it? So the interesting thing about Foucauldian discourse analysis is, um, and, and 
the way that we uh, we use the literature to actually um, develop our our practice. But yeah, definitely we were more, of course, for this critical review and this idea was more how authors and researchers actually talk about and discuss about the biopsychosocial model in low back pain. And of course, we can kind of think and um, see patterns also outside, but yeah, the main aim was how the literature actually conceptualized. And... Yeah, and I think it would be nice to go through those those four discourses that you really nicely describe. And and like I said, some of them weren't necessarily new. Like I knew that there was a kind of a trichotomizing of the BPS model, oversimplification, but the perspective that the the DA or the or the or your review gave was it really fleshed out some of these issues much in a much more in a much richer way. Yeah, you can begin to see the problem. It it, it gives it much more texture, I think, rather than people just saying, "Oh, the BPS is a problem." It trichotomizes. Clinicians struggle to understand it or apply it in different ways. But this gives us a, a, a different different view and some explanatory data, if you like, as to why there's these there are these issues. Yeah, and was actually surprising to me, uh, as you mentioned, like we knew the, the criticisms about the biopsychosocial model, the fragmentation between the bio, the psycho, and the social. But through the discourse analysis, we could actually see what is prioritized. You know, what is um, actually when we think we are doing the biopsychosocial model, or when the researchers mention that they had a biopsychosocial approach, or they are advocating for a biopsychosocial um, approach in low back pain, but what do they really focus on and what do they actually marginalize or neglect maybe? And that was really clear through the analysis. So we analyzed 66 articles and they had the good thing about a critical review and not appraising quality per se, but the meaning and the assumptions and the underpinning the, the articles is that we could analyze not only quantitative, um, the, the, the methodologies were very um, different. So we analyzed quantitative, we analyzed qualitative research, um, articles, and also non, non-empirical articles as well. So uh, viewpoints, you know, uh, commentaries, etc. So everything that was actually published and of course, we had a inclusion criteria, but we really wanted to be as broad as, okay, so what is the literature talking about and how are they talking about the biopsychosocial model? It's interesting because often those viewpoints or commentary papers or position pieces, are, are they don't get captured by systematic reviews because there's not primary, primary data. But yet, if anything, those commentaries or those viewpoints kind of are so telling about the current status of you know the BPS model, they're someone's opinion, which is usually somewhat senior in the in the profession, and it's so nice that you you're able to capture those papers too. Yeah, exactly, and um, it is interesting how so everything shapes the way that we think and eventually the way that we act in clinical practice, right? And if we are, you know, publishing these articles, not only you know, systematic reviews, RCTs, which are more well-known and now more appraised the qualitative research um, area. But we need to actually understand uh, how they influence our practice and, and how they influence the way that we talk about the biopsychosocial model as well. And I was really surprised because definitely when looking at the, uh, at the articles, I 
did the same mistake as a clinician. So I was a clinician for seven years. Um, not mistake, sorry. That's not the, the, the good word. It's just like the patterns that we are, um, def- we find ourselves because that's what we think. And, and the literature says that we need to do this or that this is better. But when we look at it, is it? So we need, that's the good thing about the analyzing critically the, the literature and the, our practices is that we need to see mm. the underlying assumptions as well. So if we can just dive into some of those discourses, if that's okay, and feel free to have to check the paper if you, it's been a while since you read it. Yeah. I've got them in front of me. But, but the first one was to c- conflating the BPS model with the biomedical model, which is a super interesting description of a discourse. Maybe tell us a bit about that one. Yeah, so uh, when looking at the, at the literature and looking at the articles, we, men- we, we saw how they say they, did, they had a biopsychosocial approach, of course, and they took a biopsychosocial approach either in assessment or management or even like the viewpoints uh, and commentaries about um, the model. But they were really focusing on the biological part, right? And they were really focusing on outcomes and biological outcomes, which focus on pain and disability. And one of the most surprising things um, was uh, when they focus on pain neurophysiology, right? Through especially pain neurophysiology education or other types of education that encompasses explaining pain and going through the neurophysiology of pain to patients. And they were clearly mentioned that this was a biopsychosocial approach. And of course, you can uh, understand, you know, how the nervous system works and how actually um, it, um, you know, influences our, our behaviors and our, the way that we socialize and etc. But when, we fo- when the focus was primarily on pain neurophysiology education, you are actually focusing on the biology, right? And... And just to make clear, the four discourses that were, we, we mentioned, it, the texts, it was not only like articles, what could be like excerpts of the articles or parts of the articles, but there were articles that were underpinned by more than one discourse. You know, it's not... Yeah, so there was an overlap, but they weren't mutually exclusive. Exactly. There was an overlap. So especially with this pain neurophysiology education focus, uh, we noticed how this was actually part of two discourses, not only the biological, the, the conflation with the biomedical model, but also with, you know, the cognition behavior and et cetera, which is part of the second, the second discourse. So everything overlapped, you know, it's not as straightforward as we are saying, but of course for didactics, um, so yeah, so although they were saying that they were taking a biopsychosocial approach and they were you know, advocating for a biopsychosocial model, they were focusing on the biology. So they were actually conflating the, the model, the biopsychosocial model with the biomedical model in, in this more um, in-depth analysis, if you think about it. And it's really hard. I, I'm trying to put my, take the position of those researchers that would do you know, pain neuroscience education or whatever, PNE. They would say, yeah, yeah, but we're still trying to educate even though it's a, even though it's just telling people right, and it's not an optimal form or ideal form of education, giving people information. But I suppose the boundaries of what when does bio become psycho become social? That's it's a real grey area. So, so you can I can kind of sympathise in a way with them thinking, well, we're trying to educate about 
pain science and we're trying to give people knowledge so it changes the way that they think in a way that's kind of psycho isn't it that's not sticking in needles or syringes or whatever kind of biomedical intervention so i suppose i'm just the lines of when something becomes bio to psychosocial these aren't clear lines aren't they that yeah definitely and i think that's the beauty of qualitative research as well right so you just need to be careful to kind of that there are certain patterns and of course they can change you know depending on who views it and in qualitative research the researcher also has a, an impact on um, the analysis as well but the way that we analyze the data and to to ensure you know trustworthiness and um the the rigor th this was discussed through our team quite quite um quite a lot and we actually had you know professor Paul Hodges, he's a quantitative researcher so we all um, and Rebecca also is sociologist. So this is kind of a discussion and the fragmentation of the biopsychosocial model. It's not, it's not new, right? And but how it's actually fragmented and what where is the um, uh, the focus, right? In our the way that we kind of the researchers do the research. Are we focusing on where where is our focus when we we talk about the biopsychosocial model? And of course, this is not. You know, this is not the only truth. <laughs> and the, the, this critical review is not the only truth. That's not what we, it's not the, uh, our underpinning theoretical perspective. We embrace multiple truths, but the way that the, the literature and the, through the this Foucauldian discourse analysis is actually seeing some patterns that maybe makes us think in how we are enacting and how we are thinking about the biopsychosocial model nowadays and how can we actually think differently you know analyze it in different ways both as researchers and clinicians as well and the, the second discourse which is like we said these are all interrelated but the second the second one with cognitions behavior yellow flags and rapport and yeah say something about that discourse what was that discourse communicating yeah so we've noticed how you know of course the the majority of the articles were focusing on still the biological part, you know, like still focusing on outcomes, uh, biological outcomes, pain, disability, but also they were equally kind of focusing on psychological in certain ways. And the way that they were focusing on the psychological was more through, you know, cognitive patients' beliefs, and not only patients, but clinicians as well, attitudes, beliefs, and unhelpful beliefs. And the way that they assessed um, the, the the articles that actually had some assessment was through, you know, the very well-known checklist, yellow flags. So just going through some questionings and going through some risk assess assessments for uh, low back pain and from uh, chronic pain. So this was really interesting how they considered, you know, taking a cognitive approach as biopsychosocial. So they were assuming, um, and the, the assumptions was underlying it, was that through, you know, changing patients' beliefs and changing clinicians' beliefs as well, uh, they were actually doing and taking a biopsychosocial approach, which if you think about it and through the pattern, you kind of focus on the psychological part and also in one aspect of the psychological. Psychological can be many things. And they were focusing on cognition, yeah. behavior, 
you know, uh, attitudes, beliefs, not only from the patient's perspective, but also the clinicians and how that actually influences the biopsychosocial approach. And, and it was this discourse that the power dynamics that you were interested in through your Foucauldian analysis came in and you, you talked about unhelpful beliefs or inadequate cognitions or behavioural interventions all suggest a, an uneven power structure where the clinician would would judge, would you know, they would stand up and say, these are unhelpful beliefs and these are inadequate cognitions and you know, I will give you an intervention which are suggestive of a particular power imbalance. Yeah, you can see power in that way. So for Foucault, power is everywhere, right? Um, so it's it's embedded in the way that we we think, we act, in the way that clinicians, of course, treat patients or talk to patients or this patient patient clinician interaction, and it also uh, power plays a part in the way that we have this as a clinician. This oh. This is what you have, or this diagnosis, and not only the diagnosis, like the labels, but also like the unhelpful beliefs, or this is what is wrong with you, right? And it's usually in this discourse, specifically, is about the cognition, the problem, um, the, how we discuss the biopsychosocial model in low back pain is focusing on, you know, the patient's unhelpful beliefs. And also the clinicians, if you think about it, that we are focusing too much and we're focusing too much in, on the individuals, right? If you, uh, if we think about it on the, on this cognition yellow flags, we're focusing on individualistic care, how people think, how people should think or should not think. And this is, this is say, this says a lot about the way that we actually think about, uh, health. In general, but of course, focusing on low back pain, how we think about low back pain, how we think about the biopsychosocial model in low back pain. It's pretty much individualistic and focusing on certain psychological aspects. And you have others, you have the interpersonal aspects and where power plays out. But this is not discussed when we talk about the biopsychosocial model. We don't talk about these interpersonal relationships and in, in this interpersonal power relationships and how this also influences how people act and how people work. So the terms that we described on helpful beliefs or inadequate cognitions, they suggest a certain power dynamic, I think. Is it the case that that you either just change the words and then it changes the power dynamics. But if there's underlined, we can say, well, that's not very, you know, that, that word is a loaded term. It describes a certain relationship. Or we just, we'll just change unhelpful to, I don't know, something else, which is less judgmental or less suggestive of a, of a dominant dominancy on the part of the clinician. But it doesn't necessarily change the power, does it? So we can change the words, but actually the underlying structures, power structures don't change. And I suppose just say something about it's not just about the the language that you're that you're interested in, but it's the 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 deeper kind of meaning or or power structures below it. Yeah, exactly. So um, it is not only about changing the words or changing unhelpful beliefs, but it's changing the way that we look at pain and focusing on the biopsychosocial model, how we actually talk about it and how we we conceive it. Right. And the power can 
not only be destructive, it can be constructive as well. And we can shape it, I think. I think that's the most, one of the most important things. It's, it's fluid. And we need to acknowledge this fluidity as well. So the power that we mention in the Foucauldian uh, discourse analysis in our paper is about how actually we're almost the power within the health and within, um, how can I say, so we're still focusing, although we are trying to take a holistic approach, although we are trying to take a patient-centered care approach, although we are trying to share this power, the power is still focusing on biological aspects and certain psychological aspects. You know, it's not only on the in usually who has the power to kind of say what's wrong, what's not wrong, and how to treat it. It's clinicians um, as well. But th this is not actually the, the, the focus that much on the power relations between clinicians and patients. But when we mention power within the biopsychosocial model, it's more related to what is focused on, right? Yeah. What is marginalized. And the, the way power operates within the biopsychosocial model is towards biological and towards psychological narrowly right? Narrow psychological aspects such as cognition, behavior. So that's how um, the, the power here operates. Yeah. And I think typically when people have made that observation that there's a, there's a, a tendency to emphasize the biological factors within the biopsychosocial model, one of the reasons, one of the, I suppose, the proposed reasons as to why that's the case is that it's just easy and historically undergraduate training has been pretty well kind of saturated in biomedicine and biological stuff and people are good at finding biological bits of patients and doing stuff to them so but that's quite a superficial explanation compared to the underlying power uh, structures which might be driving that exactly so that's um how our society operates right and especially in healthcare so historically we focus on the biological aspects because it gives us power to kind of to say what's wrong and what's not wrong and how we can fix it so it's not only through focusing on biological and psychological it's a way that fix that we sh can fix as well in certain ways so the way that we actually are you know our training I usually focus on biological because it's something that we can have control with and also have, you know, control over the patient maybe. And through the society, and this can be, um, clinicians are there for a reason, of course, you know, we have our roles um, as healthcare professionals and, you know, we want really to, to help people, but that, that's not everything. You know, and we need to actually um, kind of critically analyze what helping people means and what our training and what the research is telling us and how we can actually, okay, so what's, what's the underlying assumption here uh, when I'm educating patients about pain neurophysiology education, when I do a course about X, Y, or Z, but what actually is the underlying assumption here and through you know, focusing on cognition and focusing on uh, this micro level perspectives, we're actually marginalizing the macro and how the social impacts this, the way that we act, the way that we think as well. 
so yeah, it's not only about fragmentation, but it's also what we focus on as clinicians. And although we may, we may say that we don't have, we can change certain things, but we can definitely make it easier and make it uh, more more clear for, for patients in that interaction. And that brings us on to the third discourse, which is related, which is, again, it's a consistent argument that I, from people that I've spoken to or within the literature, this brief and occasional social underpinnings. So the social aspects are just forgotten and people kind of mumble something about work or divorce and then move on to, to something else. And, you know, I'm guilty too in my clinical practice. It's an area which, which is really underdeveloped within the BPS model and no one's quite sure what to do about it. Yeah, and that's what I've been noticing is when we talk about the social, either researchers or clinicians, they would say, ah, this is not my scope of practice, right? I can't change the social. But the social is everywhere. So it's, it's how, you know, we're embedded. It's not something separate. And that's the problem as well with fragmenting um, the the way that we do and the biopsychosocial model and the, now I'm going to focus on biology and now I'm going to focus on psychology. And so it, this doesn't happen in practice. Everything is interrelated and interconnected. But the way that we saw the, uh, the articles, they actually, when they say, they mention about the social aspects um, in the, within the biopsychosocial model, they were mentioning just work, um, family, certain types of relationships, and that was usually it. There was not a lot of discussions about how this, you know, macro level aspects actually influence our practice, how the social determinants of health, uh, that there wasn't, and even explicitly some articles mentioned how social demographic aspects were not as important as cognition or cognitive behavioral um, aspects, for example. So, that, that tells us something, right, in how we actually don't think about. And if you're a clinician, for example, and you're working in a private practice or you're working in a public, you know, th these are two different uh, scenarios, two different um, cohorts, but it doesn't mean that it's without the social, right? It's within the social. So the social is interconnected with the way that we, we do and the way that we act things. Um, embarrassed to say, I think this was the discourse where you referenced one of my papers. Oh, so, really? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I think we had a, a lack of detail about human relationships and their relevance to the BPS model, which you're almost completely right, that we oh. looked at with a, a former student of mine, Giacomo Zangani. We looked at Italian physiotherapists, their conception of the BPS model and psychosocial factors. But we were a good example where there was a, there's a lack of discourse or a lack of attention around those social human relationships within these papers. Yeah, and of course we know that you know there's uh, little space to talk about this, but we just need to uh, pay attention in how we're actually describing things, right? And what what is our focus on? And we have, and it, that's really that's really a surprise that I and and I was thinking with myself, I was like, ah, oh, I wonder if someone will actually, one of the, the authors will knock on my door or send me an email and now <laughs> here it is. Uh, uh, someone saying, oh, you actually um, cited one of the papers. And 
it's really interesting because it really is, is can be confronting. And me as a researcher, that's how I thought. Um, that's how I act uh, and a clinician as well. But the critical review gives a perspective in how can I kind of change this or focus more because the social underpinnings was really, was really kind of... Um, weak. Say it. Weak and there, yeah, was was there overall, but it's not, it, it's a pattern, right? It's not, and the the thing is, we are not trying to see individual papers. We are, we're looking at these courses and of course the way that we write and the way that we research, it's not an individual problem, right? It's not one of the authors or two of the authors. We analyze 66 articles and the way that the 66 articles conceptualized the biopsychosocial model was pretty much the same. And I'm, I'm, and I can be wrong, but if we go through 100 articles or 200 articles, possibly they're going to do the same. And that makes us think, oh, is this one research that didn't focus on social? Is it another research that didn't focus on the psychological? Or is it the way that we conceptualize the biopsychosocial model and how the biopsychosocial model itself is built? with fragmentations, with marginalization of certain aspects because it, it doesn't concern me or it does it's not my scope of practice, which it is. It is the scope of practice not only from clinicians but from researchers to actually pay attention to these um, more macro-level perspectives. Just putting some explanations to, to why maybe that side of the BPS model was forgotten, at least in our paper, was you kind of, as it goes with writing papers and research, you kind of follow the the narrative of the previous papers that you cite. So you say, well, how are people, how is the literature talking about the BPS model? You're, uh, it's interesting just thinking, think, you're thinking out loud that, that you are, you're unconsciously follow Perpetuating. Yeah, you're, well, you're unconsciously perpetuating these, these narratives, these discourses partly because you feel obliged just to be consistent with the, the literature and the authors before you, which certainly as researchers, we should be much more critical in how we're describing the phenomena that we're, we're researching. Often we just take the phenomena off the shelf or the, the, the model or the BPS model, take it off the shelf, how, how, it's been, how it's been described in previous studies, say, well, this is it, this is what I'm looking at without really thinking about, well, actually, what am I looking at? How has it been, been described in previous studies? But you, you don't often get that luxury in a, in a research study with limited time and funding and that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. And this says about uh, not only, it's not an individualistic problem. It's not the clinician or the researcher who didn't have, you know, enough time to critically think. But if we think about discourses in our everyday life, so the discourses is not only in the critical review, but the discourses are there in our everyday life. And the literature, um, you know, even the, the first article will kind of reflect on the society, will reflect on how we, we say about things, how we discuss things, right? And how we interpreted things. So it's not, and that's one of the things that we notice about the biopsychosocial model and how we can actually... We really need to kind of move away from this simplistic, individualistic, victim-blaming kind of aspect. Like not not blaming the researchers 
the clinicians, the authors, or the patients. Like we really need to dig deeper. What, uh, how these discourses are not only on the literature, but it's also, you know, on our everyday life. If you if you want, of course, you can't. Um, that's too much of a philosophical thinking, and we are discussing a paper. But maybe we need to to figure it out how actually this shapes, you know, the this discourses in our society actually shapes the way that we research, the way that we think. And and we, we really need to see how this macro level perspectives actually influence our understanding and our research and clinical practice. The beauty about me, Michel Foucault, and um, of course, I'm not the, the expert in, in this field, but where is power, there is resistance as well. So his later work focused on resistance and how we can actually shape and change these power systems. Uh, and this is one of the, the papers that I'm working on as well. I'm actually uh, almost to submit how the concept of power is also related to the concept of resistance and how we can actually resist certain discourses and certain ways of thinking. So this is also within our, our field, is also within our our possibilities to actually not only kind of perpetuate the discourses, but also kind of resist certain discourses. And it is happening. This critical review is not, obviously, is not the first one, you know, and it's not going to be the last. And uh, this discussion about the fragmentation of the biopsychosocial model, which is, was not, how do you say, challenged, right? Like a couple of years ago, the biopsychosocial model was not challenged at all. Uh, and now we're having this discussions and this, wait, wait a minute, what does that, what doing a biopsychosocial model approach really means? Is it right or what's going on here? As I said, that this our, our conversation is coming off the back of 16 episodes with the Cause Health Group, in which they propose a, a different ontology for causation and as a result, a different way of viewing medical uniqueness and they would have their own criticisms about the biopsychosocial model and probably replace it with dispositionalism, a, a different theory, if you like, of causation. And this is probably unfair to ask you as a PhD student what, what the alternative theory is, but it, it, I just wonder that, so they, they would be quite clear about the, the, re, the replacement, if you like, the replacement conceptual framework for practice based on an ontological argument around causation, do you imagine that, that the approach that you're taking or perhaps the broader project with, with Jenny Setchell, whether or not this will, you'll, you'll end up with a revised theory of whatever it's called, or, or is it, do you, do you imagine just tweaking the existing model and, or you're not looking to change the model? I just wonder what the, the, what's the end game, the end goal? Yeah, that's really that's a really interesting question because, and of course, I'm only my on my second year of my of my PhD and approaching my last year where I actually have to put some ideas together. But I'm actually using the philosopher and ethnographer Annie Marie Moll, uh, and in her book uh, The Body Multiple, she talks about multiple the body as multiple and the multiplicity. So I'm using her concept of multiplicity to also look at, you know, the non-biological aspects of care or actually low back pain care in general. So, and what I mean by that is um, that in 
her book, she actually talks about ontologies. So in, in her book, she actually follows atherosclerosis in a hospital and how is, how is discussed, how atherosclerosis is discussed and how is enacted what she mentions. It's something different from uh, being discussed or being thought about is how is enacted. And there are not only one atherosclerosis, there are various and multiple atherosclerosis. So you have this kind of multiplicity of atherosclerosis that sometimes you can focus on, you know, the artery, but sometimes you can focus on the patient in their social aspects and you can focus on surgery, you can focus on the physical and the function. And so there are multiple ways of looking at the same condition at the same. And, but of course, this multiplicity also brings about what is discussed the most and what is discussed the least and what is the focus on in certain, certain areas of this hospital where she actually follows, uh, what she means, follows atherosclerosis. So I'm using her work to think about low back pain, to critically think about the biopsychosocial model. So I'm not proposing that there is only one way doing research or only one way of looking at the low back pain. But I think embracing this multiplicity of ways of no different ways of knowledge, different ways of doing as well. So for her, a condition or something is it's only worth researching in practice, right? You can think about it and you can read about it, but what is the practice of the biopsychosocial model, what is the practice of low back pain and how we are practicing it? I'm actually not there yet to actually propose another thing or to yeah. say, and I think this goes against my what I'm learning as well as a qualitative, I'm a very new, as you can probably mention, a new qualitative researcher, but it's kind of when you kind of mention, oh, this is the new thing that you have to do. I think there are multiple interesting ways of you know, looking at the bio, um, not a multidimensional approach. I think, I, I think the, the important thing is to kind of challenge this one special way of doing things, for example, the biopsychosocial model and propose another things and things that can sometimes fit within a community, but not fit within another, you know, fit within certain aspects, but don't fit when treating other people. So, we just need to be careful about plurality, you know, it's not a panacea or a chaos, but it's kind of, you need to actually, um, yeah, critically think about what you're doing. Yeah. And just, I think just highlighting or explicating some of those tacit assumptions around the BPS model. So when people are writing about the BPS model, researchers like me or anyone else writing about the BPS model, there's a tendency, as you said, quite rightly, to emphasize or de-emphasize or marginalize different aspects. And there's a, you know, coming from a Foucaultian perspective, there'd be a, a set of a particular theory behind that. Why is it being marginalized? You've got some reasons for that based on power, etc. But I think that for the BPS model to receive this level of scrutiny is brilliant. I mean, it's about time that it's had some real intellectual you know, challenge, if you like, and critique. It's often assumed that no one really knows what it means. It kind of means everything to, to everybody. But to get some, uh, I think this is the same with the, with the course health guys, uh, to get some much stronger theoretical underpinnings or critique of it can only enhance the way that it's conceptualized and utilized ultimately in practice. 
Exactly. I think obviously there are some very positive things about, you know, the, the shift from a biomedical to a biopsychosocial model. You know, it, it was, I'm not saying that it's, there's no worth on it, but we, we just, we're just shaping and we need to shape things and we need to kind of criticize as well and critically think, wait, is this still relevant and why not relevant? And if it's relevant in which way? So we just need to be very careful with things that are not, you know, when you kind of put something on a pedestal and you say, oh, that's right. That's the, the main truth, right? Uh, everywhere. So, But it kind of has. The, I mean, the BPS model, even I've been guilty of that as a researcher and clinician. Say, well, this is it. Like the BPS model. Oh, me too. Me too, as a clinician, <laughs> as a researcher as well. Um, I did pain neurophysiology. Like I educated my patients in about pain and it's not about not doing things, right? I'm not saying that we shouldn't do um, at all. I'm just saying that we just need to critically mention what's um, what's the really underlying assumption when I'm teaching my patient about pain and how his nervous system or her nervous system is working. What am I actually saying here, you know, without <laughs> actually saying it? Um, so... Yeah, it is really, it's really interesting. I was really surprised, um, or not that surprised with cer certain findings, but it definitely kind of is shaping the way that I see health. I'm having the, the wonderful opportunity to understand more about social theories, um, about, you know, sociology, about the interpersonal power relationships as well, and how this actually is shaping the way that clinicians work, the way that we think, the way that um, researchers discuss things. Uh, and maybe just say, lastly, how the, the implications of this for clinical practice, and I suppose I'm also trying to tie in a short, it was kind of like a short recording podcast with you, Jenny, and your third supervisor. Rebecca. Rebecca Olson. Rebecca Olson. Rebecca Olson. So that, because that alluded to the power dynamics within clinical practice and how clinicians implicitly or tacitly or you know, exert hidden power over patients. So I just were trying to link the two, the kind of theoretical stuff that you've done with the material effects of clinicians' behavior with their patients. Yeah, so we recorded, it was a small audio as a research output. It was brilliant though, I really liked it. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I'm glad it resonated because we... That's that's one of the biggest, um, of course, parts of my, Dr. Jenny Satchel's work. So that's my supervisor, and she that that's one of her main works in related to power dynamics um, in healthcare. And we actually wanted to kind of have some research outputs which were not academic, you know. So we kind of recorded this this audio about how power is actually, as I mentioned, everywhere. Right. And even when we have this, this little things in practice, for example, even going through a checklist, this can be a sort of power over um, the patient, right? Is a subtle way of power. Sometimes when we think about power, it's more like a top down approach where, you know, you have governments and uh, institutions, but we, we're also in our interpersonal relationships, we're also exerting certain power over others, right? Mm. And for example, when we, we go through a checklist, this kind of maybe assume that we're just focusing on those things that are in the checklist. Everything that is outside is not part of my agenda. 
It's not part part of the clinician agenda. So this is a kind of a uh, what all the researchers call benign manipulation. So because it's unintended, right? We don't actually think about we we have to go through certain questions because that's how we're how we're mm. how we function. But in itself, the, the the questionnaire sets the agenda. It pretty much says, yeah. this is what I want you to give me information of, information on, and you've got no say in it. You know, fine, you might be able to tell me something afterwards and we can have a conversation and that's fine. But for the moment, I want you to tell me about this stuff, whether it's just you know, ranking their pain or their location or the kind of start back, all that stuff. It's very much clinician decided. Clinician led exactly. Mm. Apart from the last question, is there <laughs> anything you'd like to ask me or something? <laughs> you know, and we we do it routinely, right? And I think that's the that's the thing. We just need to kind of rethink. Oh wait, how can I do it differently? How can I, you know, like this? And and this is what we saw in our research. So as I mentioned, I'm observing. So I'm sitting in. in interactions, you know, clinical uh, interactions between clinicians and patients. And this is what we observed in our research, how usually you have this checklist, how usually it's more clinician-led, you know, the majority of time. But again, where it's power, there is resistance. And there are some very beautiful interactions where you could see there's a, this power is shared, right? There is a dynamic where, of course, you have certain question to go through of course you're not going to just sit with the the patient and <laughs> just okay now i'm not doing anything no you you have to go through certain things but you can also share the power right you can also have a more collaborative discussion with the patient you can also not only with the patient but maybe people that are important to them you know family partners, uh, friends, etc. So community. So you can actually have a more collaborative practice and like linking with the critical review and how the social underpinnings and how the social aspects are left aside. You can actually, as a clinician, actively resist that and think about uh, what's the social, how and, and, and how the social is actually embedded in the way that we that we act. Karimi, thank you so much for speaking to me on the podcast. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. It uh, has been great to discuss a little bit about, you know, the paper, what I'm doing. And I'm reaching actually my last year with, where everything I have to put together. And it's really interesting to kind of discuss that with uh, with people and how my research is resonating or not. And of course, I'm always free to kind of discuss in you know, through emails, uh, oh, I think about this. I've seen um, there was someone who mentioned how they share the, the the review with clinicians and there was some interesting findings and some interesting discussions and that's that's about it. It's not it's, it's not only positive, it's not only negative, uh, but how can we yeah, how can we continue with this discussion about, you know, thinking, having other thoughts and having other discussions and having bringing all the discourses into play. Bye, Krimi. All the best. Bye-bye. Great. Thank you. Enjoy your night. <laughs> Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs 
and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.